Please remain um, standing for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Today's scripture reading comes from Judges chapter 16, verse 4 to 22, and then skipping ahead to verse 28 to 30. This is also, um, if you have your, if you're using a blue pew Bible, this is on page 215. Let me repeat that again. Today's scripture reading comes from Judges chapter 16, verse 4 to 22, and then skipping ahead, 28 to 30. Hear now God's holy and inerrant word, profitable for our sanctification, our justification, in all aspects of its life, of our life, and it is living and breathing in us. Verse four, after this he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah, and the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you a thousand and one hundred pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound, that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the, the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And, went, and she made them tight with a pin and said to, the, said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me with these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when he pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my, from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his, uh, told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands, she made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out at, as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. 
And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with, iron, with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair out of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Skipping ahead to verse 28. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against him, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us once more. Oh, Heavenly Father, as the word has now been read, we pray for your spirit to come, for your spirit to move, for your spirit to work among us, enlightening our eyes, opening up our hearts, helping us to see your truth, to see a word of your gospel, your grace in this text, and ultimately to see your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen. You know, recently, I've been listening to a podcast on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. It takes a, uh, a fascinating deep dive into the story of Mars Hill Church over in Seattle. The church was planted by Mark Driscoll in 1996. It quickly grew into a multi-site megachurch with 15 campuses across five states, but it all dramatically imploded back in 2014. And the podcast explores all the perils of power and conflict and of the celebrity culture found in many churches and within the larger evangelical world. Now, one of the arguments that's being made in the podcast is that so many of these dramatic falls are a result of our tendency among churches to elevate leaders whose charisma outpaces their character, where their giftedness exceeds their godliness. And that's what's presented as one of the main contributing factors to Mars Hill's fall. I mean, if you ever heard a Mark Driscoll sermon, you can tell that he is extremely charismatic and he is a gifted speaker. I mean, he can just, he can yell at you in a sermon and at the same time make you laugh. But he has this comedic timing to his delivery. He can keep you engaged and entertained through, through an hour-long sermon. But apparently, his charisma outpaced his character. His giftedness exceeded his godliness, and he had these extraordinary gifts, and he had this extraordinarily high calling to influence over 10,000 congregants on a weekly basis, which makes his eventual fall all that more devastating and disappointing. The rise and fall of Driscoll and Mark Mars Hill Church 
is really a modern parable that conveys to us an ancient truth. The same truth that I argue is found in this morning's text, in the rise and fall of Samson, an extraordinarily gifted man with an extraordinarily high calling to be Israel's deliverer, but his giftedness exceeded his godliness, his charisma outpaced his character, and great was his fall. But at the same time, great was the grace of God to still accomplish some mighty things through a very fallen man. Friends, this summer, what we've been doing is we've been going through a series called Heroes of the Faith, where we've been selecting Old Testament heroes and preaching on the most prominent, most well-known highlight moment in their story. Now, Compared to the other characters that we have covered or that we will cover, Samson is a bit different. He's more of an anti-hero. He's not really presented as a biblical example for us to emulate. He's more like a biblical warning that you ought to heed. But even still, you're still going to find Samson in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, along with, alongside all those other heroes of the faith that, that we're going to cover in this series. So there is still something that we can learn in a positive way from Samson. His enemies, uh, I mean, uh, uh, what we're going to see this morning is that Samson is a man gifted with superhuman strength. That's his extraordinary gift. And he has an extraordinary high calling to be Israel's deliverer. But all the while, he, he never took it seriously. He took all those things for granted, and he treated his strength as this given, as this inalienable right that was innate to him, as if he was something, it was something he was just born with and that he thought he would never lose. Now, his enemies, on the other hand, assumed um, Samson also was the source of his own strength, but they assumed that he could somehow lose that power because they didn't think that his strength was innate. They didn't assume that he was born with it. They figured that he must have done something to obtain all of this power. And so they figured that he could also lose that power if they could do something to solve this riddle or to break the spell that he has cast. But what both Samson and his enemies fail to recognize is that it's the grace of God which is the true source of his extraordinary gifts. And they didn't understand that God's gifts can be freely given or they can be taken away. They are not innate and they're not earned. They're gifts of grace. Now, at first glance, I know when you read this story, uh, you might conclude, especially the, the whole part about Samson and Delilah, that this story is about toxic relationships about how love or or, or lust can blind you from the obvious. And yes, you're going to certainly find elements of that in this story. But friends, the story is about so much more. This morning, what I want to show you is how this final vignette in Samson's life is ultimately about teaching us about the grace of God. That's what the story is about. This morning, I want to show you three portraits presented in our text. We're going to see three things. We're going to first see a man carelessly toying with his gifts and calling. 
Second, a people superstitiously trying to turn God's hand. And third, a God graciously achieving victory through defeat. There's an outline in your bulletin. If you want to follow along, those points are listed out there for you. Samson's story actually begins earlier back in Judges chapter uh, 13. And in those preceding chapters, the impression that we are given is that Samson is a man carelessly toying with his gifts and calling. Chapter 13 recounts his birth narrative. And there we're told that he was set apart from birth for a high calling. The angel of the Lord who appeared to his mother, who, by the way, had been barren and childless, The angel told her that this child will grow up to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, recall how in the entire book of Judges, there's this cyclical pattern being repeated throughout Israel's history, where there's this pattern of rebellion among God's people, which then leads to repression under a foreign power, which then leads to repentance and the people crying out for help to the Lord, which leads to redemption through a God-appointed deliverer or judge. But then that peace is short-lived, and Israel falls right back into rebellion, and the cycle continues over and over again. Well, in this cycle, the foreign power is, uh, the, uh, are the Philistines, and Samson is the set-apart deliverer and judge of Israel. Now, even while he was in utero, he was placed under a special vow of consecration, a vow of service to the Lord. It was called a Nazarite vow. The idea comes from Numbers chapter 6, and the term Nazarite means to be set apart or to be consecrated. If an Israelite wanted to make a special vow to consecrate himself in service to the Lord, he would take on a Nazarite vow, which would require three things, three stipulations. You must first refrain from drinking wine or anything from the grapevine. Two, you must refrain from cutting your hair during the duration of that vow. And three, you must refrain from any contact with a dead body, with a dead corpse of any kind. If you violate any of these stipulations, you break the vow and you are no longer set apart. You are no longer consecrated in God's service. Now, what's unique in this particular case is that normally the Nazarite vow would be something voluntary. But Samson is placed under this vow from a prenatal state. While she's carrying him in her womb, his mother is told that she must refrain from wine and anything unclean, since he's going to be affected by whatever she eats or drinks. And while most Nazarite vows are only temporary until, uh, until the, the, the duty or, or particular time period is complete, Samson's vow appears to be intended for the entirety of his life. And so the whole point of that birth narrative is to tell us that this is a Nazarite like none other. What we're supposed to be impressed. He is set apart and consecrated to the Lord to a greater degree than any other who has come before him. We are to be blown away by who this little boy could very well be. We're supposed to have very high hopes. Surely he is going to do some amazing things for the Lord. And in chapters 14 to 15, as he grows up, Samson is portrayed as a young man with extraordinary gifts, especially the gift of strength. 
in chapter 14, verse 6, he tore apart a lion with his bare hands. In chapter 15, 14, he struck down a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. And here in chapter 16, verses 1 to 3, he averts an ambush that was set for him. Look, look at verse 2 of chapter 16. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and they set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night saying, let us wait till the light of the morning. Then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight and at midnight he arose and he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Now from Gaza to Hebron, friends, is a 40-mile hike. He pulled the posts of the gate right out of the ground, and he carried this gate on his shoulders for 40 miles and uphill at the last leg. This is a portrait of an extraordinarily gifted man with extraordinary strength called to a noble task as the deliverer of his people. But what did he do with those gifts? What did he do with that calling? He toys with them. He, he doesn't take any of this seriously. I mean, we just have to ask ourselves, what was he doing in Gaza in the first place? This major Philistine city, what was he doing there? Well, verse 1 tells us that he was visiting a prostitute, which was an unfortunate pattern within his story. His life calling was to deliver his people by driving the Philistines away. But in tragic irony, throughout his story, Samson is actually drawn towards Philistine life and especially Philistine women. And that leads us to Delilah, the woman that's introduced to us in verse 4. He apparently fell in love or fell in lust with her. In verse 5, the lords of the Philistines come to Delilah and they make a proposition. They seek her help in discovering the secret to, to Samson's strength. They want to overpower him, to bind him, and to humble him. And they say they will make it worth her while they offer her a hefty bribe. So starting in verse 6 and stretching all the way down to verse 22, we read this back and forth narrative going on where Delilah is trying to get Samson to reveal the secret of his great strength so that she can pass that secret along to the Philistines who are waiting right outside their door each night. And you know, it's not like Samson was fooled here. It's not as if he had no idea what she was doing. She actually tells him her plan directly without equivocation. Look there, it's verse 6 again. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Look at that. No sugarcoating, right? No, no subterfuge. I mean, she's just telling it to him straight. She tells him exactly what, what she wants to do to Samson. Samson, she wants to subdue you. And yet he goes and plays along. Why? 
Well, some would theorize that maybe it's because he's so lovesick. And, you know, love blinds you, right? You know, you, you, you just, you don't see reality when you're in love. No, I, I, I disagree. I, I think Samson is well aware of what she's trying to do. He just doesn't care because he's not threatened by her. After all that he's accomplished, I mean, he, he, he killed a lion with his bare hands. I mean, he's feeling invincible. What's a, what's a little woman going to do to him? And how's she going to bind him? And so he plays with her. It's all a joke to Samson. The bowstrings, I mean, if you think about it, they're, they're, they're an absurd suggestion. He's toying with his enemies. And after tying him up uh, with those bowstrings, Delilah calls for the Philistines who are hiding in ambush. But Samson snaps the bowstrings like they were just thread, and he escapes capture. And this same scenario plays out two more times with the same results. Next, Samson suggests, okay, use new ropes, which I guess sound more reasonable than using bowstrings. In verse 13, he, he suggests then uh, for Delilah to, to weave the seven locks of his hair together with fabric using a loom and then to fasten it all with a pin. And if you think about it, it's getting pretty ridiculous here. I mean, are we actually to imagine that he actually fell asleep in her lap next to a loom as she's, you know, working, you know, so hard to, 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 to weave his hair together and to pin it together, and he's just, he's all fast asleep? No, he's playing with her. He's not being serious. He's playing with fire, really, because in that third suggestion, he does draw attention to his hair. He doesn't give it away yet, but he is certainly playing with fire, Apparently, he doesn't care. In verse 15, Delilah accuses him of not truly loving her. And, and in verse 16, it says that she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him. His soul was vexed to death. And so finally, he caves in and he tells her all his heart. He bears his soul to her. Look at verse 17. A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Okay, so clearly Samson knows where his superhuman strength comes from. It is from God. It's because he has been a Nazarite to God from birth. And remember, one of the stipulations of that vow is to not cut your hair but at this point, Samson is willing to reveal his secret because he no longer really cares about that vow. He doesn't take his gifts or his calling seriously. Being a Nazarite is no longer a calling meant for serving God and others. Now, being a Nazarite is really just a joke meant to toy with others. He says losing his hair will mean losing his strength, but I don't really think he believes that's going to happen. Even after his hair is cut, it says that he thinks he can simply shake himself free. He assumes that his strength is going to be there even after breaking his vow. Because he's violated other aspects of his vow in the past without facing any repercussions. He strolled through a vineyard back in chapter 14, verse 5. He came in contact with the corpse of that lion 
in chapter 14, verse 9, and he picked up that donkey's jawbone in chapter 15, verse 15, and yet in all those instances, a violation to his Nazarite vow. He didn't lose his strength, and so he thought the same would be true this time. You could say that he took God's grace for granted. All his life, no one ever stopped him from doing what he wanted. No one could bind him. No one could restrain him. And so he thought things would just work out like they always have. God would just go ahead and overlook this minor infraction once again. But it was not just his strength that left him at the end of verse 19. It was actually the Lord who left him at the end of verse 20. The Lord was the source of his strength, not his hair. So without God, Samson is easily subdued. And in verse 21, it says his eyes are gouged out. He's brought then to Gaza to work at the prison mill. And what tragic irony to conclude his story. Samson lived his life doing whatever was right in his own eyes. But now his eyes are gouged out and he is forced to do the will of others. He lived his life making a mockery of his gifts, but now he's the one being mocked. He's the one being humiliated. He was given the highest calling to be Israel's mighty deliverer, but now he's just a lowly, lowly Philistine mill worker stuck in prison. Samson's story, if you think about it, is really a microcosm of Israel's story. Samson serves as a mirror for Israel to see themselves in his life. Israel was set apart, gifted, and called, and yet time and time again, she failed to fulfill her calling. The Israelites just did whatever was right in their own eyes. Like Samson, the Israelites wasted their gifts. They mocked their high calling. Like Samson, they took God for granted. and They assumed that he would be on their side no matter how they were living their lives. They treated his blessing and his power as this inalienable right. They never imagined that he might take it away. But like Samson, one day God would take his blessing and his glory away from Israel. And like Samson, Israel would eventually be seized, humiliated, and exiled in Babylon. His story is a mirror, as a mirror image of theirs. Well, friends, I think we need to take this warning seriously as well. Beware lest Samson's story becomes a microcosm of your own. Don't be like Samson. And don't take God for granted, assuming that his gifts and his blessing and his power is simply yours by right, that it should just be there at your disposal whenever you need it, regardless of how you're living your life. We must not misuse God's grace as a license to sin. Grace doesn't mean that you can just go on and do whatever is right in your own eyes. Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call that cheap grace, that kind of grace that doesn't require repentance, that, that doesn't produce obedience, that's cheap grace. It's certainly not saving grace. 
the grace that saves you not only gifts you with spiritual gifts, not only calls you to serve Christ, but it also transforms you. It changes you. It continues to conform you and your character into the image of Christ. That is saving grace. That's how you know if you've experienced God's grace in your life. Let Samson and his rise and fall really serve as a warning of what not to do. To not depend so much on giftedness and charisma to the neglect of godliness and Christian character. And to not presume that those gifts of God's power will always be there for you at your disposal. Let's learn to cultivate a heart of thankfulness for the gifts and for the calling that we have received in Christ. So Samson is portrayed as this man who carelessly toys with his God-given gifts and calling. Well, next, friends, we see the Philistines portrayed as a superstitious people trying to turn God's hand to manipulate outcomes, and they do so by appealing to magic. The Philistine leaders were convinced that Samson must be wielding some sort of magic in order to make himself so strong. And if we can just solve this riddle, if we can just break this spell, then we can break the man. This, by the way, would suggest that Samson didn't look from the outside like this, you know, Schwarzenegger bodybuilder type guy where, you know, if that were true, then really there wouldn't really be any secret to his strength. I mean, this guy is, he's built. But no, it, it, it means that he must have looked like an ordinary man of ordinary strength. And that's why the Philistines thought magic must be behind all of this. That's why they readily believe that something as silly as fresh bowstrings or, or a loom is somehow going to do the trick. Maybe these items would work like a charm and they would magically cancel out his, his superhuman strength. That's how magic works in the minds of ancient peoples. You have to apply the right incantation. You have to apply the right charms or amulets. You say these magic words, perform these magic rituals, and if you do it right, you can turn divine hands. You can make whatever God you're worshiping to work now on your behalf to do what you want. The key is you are doing something in order to make this work. Samson must be doing something in order to keep himself so strong. That's what they assumed. So when they heard, finally, that the secret is his hair, oh, that makes perfect sense to them. Oh, that's why he's so strong. His, he's got magical hair like Rapunzel. You know, if you just cut off his hair, then all that magic is going to be gone. He's going to go back to being this ordinary guy. Oh, oh, why didn't we think of that? But their mistake is thinking that the hair is what makes him so strong. And sadly, I think many readers today draw the same conclusion. We think it's all about the hair, as if there were some kind of magical qualities to it. But it's just hair. In the end, Samson didn't lose his strength because he lost his hair. Shaving his head didn't break a spell and somehow force God to retract his gift of strength. 
But shaving his head did break a vow, a vow made to God, and God had every right and prerogative to take back his gift, which was an undeserved gift in the first place. Now, by the end of verse 21, Samson has lost his eyes and lost his freedom. He's imprisoned, he's bound with shackles, he's at the lowest of lows. But did you notice in verse 22, there's that glimmer of hope? But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now again, there's nothing magical about the hair. But his growing hair, I believe, is a sign signaling that God is not through with Samson, that his strength may yet return if the Lord so wills. Now you might be wondering, why did those Philistines let his hair grow back? I mean, if they're so superstitious, why didn't they just give him a clean shave, right? Every, you know, once a week. Come here, Samson, we're going to cut that hair right back off, you know, just to play it safe. I think they let it grow back because they didn't understand grace. You see, they assumed that a vow breaker could never be forgiven. That someone like Samson could never be used by God again. They, they did not understand the freeness of God's grace. And let's be careful not to fall into that same line of thinking as the Philistines, where we assume that we have to do something to get God's blessing and power in our lives and that we have to keep doing something to keep it there. We treat spiritual practices like prayer or Bible reading or church attendance. Sometimes we treat these things like magic, thinking that you can just call down God's blessing or power by performing these right rituals or saying these right incantations. But you also might incur his curse or, or lose his power if you fail to keep up these, these religious practices. Ancient people would have called that magic. Nowadays, it's called legalism. I mean, they're really the same thing. Ancient magicians are today's legalists. Both assume that if you follow these steps, if you keep these rules, you do these certain things, then you will make God to be on your side. You can turn his hand. But if you are unfaithful, if you break your vows to God, then he is going to be done with you. There's no way he is going to use you again to do anything significant for his kingdom. It's assumed that you have to do something to obtain God's blessing and power, and you have to do something to keep yourself from losing it. Do you see the contrast between Samson and the Philistines? Samson, he saw his strength as an inalienable right, something that he'll always have regardless of what he does or doesn't do. The Philistines they saw his strength as something magical, something that he is doing to keep himself so strong, and they're trying to do something else to cancel it out. Both sides misunderstand grace. Ancient and modern Samsons don't realize that God's grace means that God doesn't owe you anything. 
He doesn't have to bless you with gifts. He doesn't have to give you a high calling. He could strip you bare. But ancient and modern legalists don't realize how gracious God really is. How willing he is to redeem us and to change us and to still use us in spite of our frequent failures and our constant vow breaking. God is gracious. I think many of us are too quick to jump to the same conclusions as those Philistines, particularly when we assess the poor state of our own spiritual lives, because we know that we've broken vows to God. We have failed him countless times. And we're tempted to think that we might never be forgiven. Or even if, if he were to forgive, we'll never be restored to full status again. We'll never be entrusted with precious gifts or, or given a high calling to serve God again. That's a fear that I think many of us have. But this is where the grace of God is such sweet news. And that grace is on full display in the final moments of Samson's story and Samson's life. If you look in verses 23 all the way to 31, God is defying all expectations. He achieves victory in a way that no one would have predicted, which then contributes to magnifying the freeness and the richness of his grace. In this final section, we're given a portrait of a God who graciously achieves victory through defeat. See, no one expected that the Lord would graciously gift and call Samson one more time. But it starts in verse 23. The Philistines throw a feast in honor of Dagon, their patron deity, and the dinner guests want Samson to come out and entertain them. He's no longer the feared ravager of their country. He's the evening entertainment. So he's led out by the hand, and he, he asks to be propped up against the pillars on which the entire building is resting. And in verse 28, Samson lets out a last cry for help. And for the first time, he addresses God by his covenantal name, Yahweh. And he asks Yahweh to, to remember him and to strengthen him one last time. Now, I'm not suggesting that Samson is some godly martyr laying down his life for the faith. He's no saint. I mean, you could argue that he mainly just wants revenge for his gouged out eyes. But at least in this prayer, he finally acknowledges his weakness. He finally realizes that his strength is not a given, but it's a gift of grace. He no longer presumes that God is always just going to be at his, on, at his side doing his bidding, regardless of how he's living. He's starting to understand the concept of grace. If he needs strength, then he knows now that he needs to trust God for it. He needs to ask God for it. And that's what he does. He turns to the God of grace, and the Lord listens. Samson is given that strength, and so we read in verse 30, and Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Wow. 
You know, God could have been done with Samson. I mean, he should have just let him rot in a Philistine prison. But by grace, he gave Samson one more chance to have one more victory. God used Samson's defeat as a means to defeat the enemy. God used Samson at his weakest to accomplish his greatest victory over the Philistines. This, my friends, is what we would call a victorious defeat. And that, my friends, is always a work of grace, which telescopes us forward to another work of grace, to another sacrifice, to another victorious defeat. I'm talking, of course, about the sacrifice and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are some big differences between Samson and Christ, which is why I would not call Samson a Christ figure. He, he's not a type of Christ. I mean, just, just think about the differences. Samson died because of his consistent disobedience, while Christ died because, because of his consistent obedience. Samson sacrifices himself and kills his enemies along with himself, while Christ sacrifices himself and delivers his enemies instead of himself. And Samson's death only began the salvation of God's people, while Christ's death fully accomplished our salvation. But even though there are differences there are enough similarities to warrant a comparison. I mean, just think about the similarities. Both Samson and Christ are betrayed by someone close to them. Both are betrayed into the hands of the Gentiles. Both end up delivering God's people all by themselves, all alone. And as we've mentioned, in defeat, both end up defeating the enemy. The cross of Christ was certainly a victorious defeat. That's where the grace of God was gloriously displayed. God owed us nothing. We owed him everything. He could have been done with us. He could have just left us to rot in our sins. But God, being rich in mercy, being full of grace, sent his son to die for our sins. God used Christ's defeat to defeat our sins. God used Christ at his weakest to accomplish his greatest victory and to secure our redemption. You know, but there is one last crucial difference between Samson and Christ. After Samson achieved victory through death, he stayed dead. He stayed in the grave. And his judgeship was over. His rule ended. But Christ didn't stay dead. He didn't stay in the grave. His story continues on and on with resurrection hope. So his judgeship continues on as well. His loving rule goes on and on forever and ever. And that endless cycle that keeps coming back to rebellion can finally be broken in Christ if we live under his loving rule forever and ever. Amen. It may be up to this point. Maybe up to this point, you feel like you have wasted the gifts that God has entrusted to you. Maybe that's true. 
Maybe you have been carelessly toying with them, using them to serve yourself. Maybe up to this point, you haven't taken your calling as a Christian seriously. You've broken your vows. Maybe you can identify a whole lot with Samson. But unlike Samson, friends, your story does not have to end in the grave. If you trust in Christ, if you find your truest identity, not in Samson, but in Christ, then with him, your story will end with new life and new hope. I think some of you need to trust in Christ for the very first time, while the rest of you need to renew that trust and to renew your vows. Why don't you make today This day, be the day that you rededicate yourself to the high calling of serving Christ with the extraordinary gifts that he has entrusted to you. Let's rededicate ourselves to Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the challenge that it gives to us, a challenge to consecrate ourselves to dedicate ourselves, to renew our vows to you. Oh, Lord, thank you for your grace to forgive us, to renew us, to use us once again after countless failures. Thank you for how loving and gracious you are. We worship you. We respond to you by giving you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.